Thanks for watching this episode of Turning to Him. I invite you to just take a few seconds right now at the beginning and subscribe to this channel so that you can get more videos like this in your feed. Thanks again. Hello, everybody. Thanks for turning in. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever messed up an intro like that. Man, we're 10 seconds into this. <laughs> what I meant to say is hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Turning to Him. Um, I am here with Jonathan Jensen, who has graciously decided to share some of his time with us. Jonathan, thanks for joining. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I've been watching some of the previous uh, uh, episodes, I, I, if, if we'll call them that, um, and uh, just really love what you're doing, allowing this uh, sort of uh, to conversation to develop that is uh, surrounding the Savior and turning to him. Sure, yeah, we've had some phenomenal people on here, and I think that's part of the whole point is that... Um, everybody has an amazing story everybody has valuable things to share and it's just been a real great opportunity to to be a part of that yeah. uh, tell us uh, it, um well let's see I, uh, I i live in holbrook arizona it's uh it's a fairly small town i know that there are smaller out there we're uh probably around five thousand people um, this is, it's not where I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Mesa, Arizona, which, um, back in the eighties and nineties and probably even still today was kind of like a, a mini Provo just in Arizona. Yeah. Um, a lot of tremendously amazing active members of the church, um, from, you know, just growing up in, uh, the stake. Um, I think, you know, um, Kemp Nickel, mm -hmm. um, a friend of mine, he's the Declare My Word account. Uh, we grew up together um, uh, pulling uh, harmless pranks on each other and uh, having general fun and things like that. Um, I won't get into his stories. I'll <clears throat> maybe let him tell that or, or his wife tell that someday. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> um, it was a wonderful place to grow up, um, definitely. Had a lot of good friends, good influence, things like that. That's great. Um, you a big family, small family? Uh, my extended family was was rather large. My my father came from a family of eight siblings. My mom, seven siblings. Um, myself, we I have a, a sister. She's the oldest of us. Um, bless her heart. Uh, and then I have an older brother and a younger brother. Okay. Very nice. So what was life like for you growing up? I mean, minus, you know, when you weren't pulling harmless pranks. Um, it was, for me, it was, as I got older, realized that there was, it was very different than what I um, I guess I had realized when I was growing up. Um, and, you know, as I talk about um, maybe some of those differences or some of the trials, um, it's not with a 
uh, an attitude of, oh, you know, it was so horrible that, you know, this or this happened. It was, it wasn't like that. Um, <clears throat> my, my wonderful mother um, struggled through uh, a diagnosis of, of bipolar disorder. And so that's, as kids, we, we grew up with um, sort of learning about that, adapting to that, thinking that that was our normal. Um, even though I had uh, friends whose, you know, home lives um, maybe were more typical or stereotypical of, you know, the dad that, that went to work and, you know, the mom that was the, the homemaker, or things like this. But as we know, there's anything but typical, the, which is really going on in people's lives. But I guess from that perspective, um, I had a, sort of a, a, a version of what I thought was normal for our family growing up. Uh, like we spent a lot of time uh, going to hospitals where my, my mother was having extended stays, getting treatment. And of course, you know, back then, treatment was uh, maybe two different medications that sometimes worked, but the side effects were probably much more difficult to go through than, um, than maybe sometimes the bipolar. Uh, so it was, it was very different. It was very, but I only looked at it as different as I started to get older and realized that it was not typical of, of what, you know, some people would be going through. Yeah. When you started to realize that perhaps your childhood wasn't typical, um, how did you start to process that? Well, I was, I was eight, I was about eight years old when this realization of just how different things were, um, aside from the fact that I had recognized that, you know, mom was in the hospital a lot, um, which was a good thing, but very different for, you know, us kids to kind of experience that sense of absentee because she was there, but she wasn't there. And uh, we had wonderful um, relatives. My grandparents stepped in and did tremendous things uh, to help out because my dad was uh, traveling a lot. He was, uh, he was an electrical engineer, but he was born with this wonderful personality, which was not typical of an engineer. So he was, he was uh, sort of as a sales rep for, for these um, devices and electronics and things like that. So, so it, it was wonderful. He was really smart, but he was also a wonderful personality and, and uh, not typically of the very just dry monotone, I guess I would say. <laughs> yeah. And if there's an engineers out there listening, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. <laughs> um, but when I was eight, um, I, and I, and I want to apologize up front. If, if I do get a little emotional, I try not to. <laughs> um, but when I was eight, it was very early hours of the morning. Um, and I was awoken to my mother 
who was having a suicidal episode when she was trying to convince me that I needed to help her end her life. And I think that's when I realized that there was something much heavier going on than what I, I guess I had become used to. Okay. And so that was, that was different. That was sort of this understanding that something was very different about my experience of, of, of my mom than probably what other people might have been going through that were peers of mine. Oh, that's a heavy load for an eight-year-old to carry. Um, finding out later as I, as I grew up, because that was not the first and only time that that happened, but that that also happened amongst my siblings as well. Um, and as we kind of got older and were able to talk about it um, from the perspective of, you know, mom, mom needs more attention. She needs more help um, than what typically we realized other people needed. And my father was this just amazing example of of patience and understanding that I and I know that that we all especially my mom realized was just this grace and gift of God that he was a part of our lives and and that was that was also something that was truly amazing to grow up with as sort of a counterbalance not to mom, but rather to that darkness that did pervade the home. Yeah. What did you all do? I mean, what are some of the things that your dad did to help counterbalance that? Um, my dad was, uh, my dad grew up on a dairy farm in Wyoming. Um, and so uh, saying that there was usually a typical attitude of this maybe farm life that that we could assume that he would have of just like, well, no, this is how things are. And this is how, you know, it's going to be. And, you know, we're not going to put up with this or this and this is going to happen. And it wasn't like that. He took the time, whether it was with my mom, whether it was with each of us kids individually he would listen. And I think part of that mind that he had as an engineer was very much an analytical kind of problem solving, but he didn't feel the need to be the one that shouldered the whole problem solving himself. We had good home teachers. We had good extended family. We had people that he knew when to reach out to, how to accept their help, and then also how to return that help. And I think one of the things that I noticed um, and that many of my siblings would probably say as well, is that we would catch him on his knees all the time we would catch him 
reading his scriptures all the time. And we were able to see through his example of how often he was turning to the Lord to partner with the Lord in order to, <clears throat> to save his family, I guess I would say. There was an episode when we were younger, much, much younger. I think I probably would have been maybe almost two years old. Um, my youngest brother would have been a couple of months old. And this would have been the very latest of the 70s, like late 79. And she, my mother was just very sick, just very sick. And they said, she's got to be hospitalized. Now, bear in mind that term is very different than what we think of today. When we think of today, somebody that maybe needs to be hospitalized, we know that it's temporary. It could be a week, it could be 10 days, it could be maybe a month or something more, but we're so far advanced in the way that we try to help people that it has a very temporary feel. Now, back then, it wasn't the same. When someone said, oh, they need to be hospitalized, it was like they're not coming out. And it was, it was something that was a very difficult concept to probably process. And this wonderful bishop, who was a young bishop, had come to my dad and having some struggles of what he grew up with, this, this bishop, had sort of looked at the situation and said to my dad, nobody would blame you if you left. If you took the kids and you left and you went and you moved on with your life, nobody would blame you. And I don't think it was counsel to say, hey, you need to do that. Right. I think he was trying to provide a sense of, of maybe comfort or a different perspective. Um, but my dad in this, this scene just looked at the bishop and he said, but that is my sweetheart in there. And I know who she is. And we will find her. And it was growing up with the examples of, like I said, seeing him on his knees, seeing him read the scriptures, recognizing that his temple covenants and, and despite the fact of what she was going through and maybe looking different than when they had dated, I think we all look different, you know, sometimes, but growing up with that example of faith, of, of recognition that um, making the effort to keep those covenants was going to bring those promised rewards. Oh, I mean, it sounds like your dad, your mom as well, but your dad is a man of unusual character. That would be a very wonderful way to put that, yes. Wow. So you brought up a couple times that, you know, back then, dealing with a person with bipolar disease is different than it is now. And I mean, nowadays, we're getting better at just understanding mental health, understanding what it's like. 
we're still not where we 100% need to be, but we're a lot better than we were back then. <laughs> right. As a child, did you wrestle with any embarrassment or or just not understanding or anything like that? Um, for me, I didn't. That was not my experience to feel embarrassed. Um, I, my typical response was to, um, try to, to help where I could. Um, I mean, you, you kind of grow up really fast. Um, and, and everybody probably has a story like that where they feel like they grow up really fast, but I know, I know that, uh, that there were times when I was at, um, the homes of, of other friends, um, and whose parents, you know, struggled with, with, uh, with different things. Um, and then there were certain friends that, you know, sometimes I would be at their home and they'd start bossing around their mom, you know, like, mom, you need to do this. Mom, blah, blah, blah. And they were kind of being disrespectful. And, and that, that hit differently for me because then I was the one that was like, dude, I'm about to knock you off your chair. You cannot talk to your mom like that. Like you don't even understand like how grateful you should be for the fact that your mom still folds your clothes and your underwear and puts it away for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You need to be more grateful. And I mean, that, 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 that was kind of my response. And I'm not saying that all my friends had those you know kinds of, of situations, but, but there were times where I was just like, no, nope, no, that's not okay. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it was because in, in a lot of ways, like, like I've mentioned that my dad was kind of this, this hero for, for our story, but at the same time, so was my mom. I mean, she was this, you know, almost literal genius. I mean, her, her mind was so gifted in so many ways. Um, And she was this person that when she started to come to herself, so to speak, and recognize you know, the contrast of, of what was going on, she said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take control of this. And she went back uh, to school when I was um, in like junior high, she started to go back to get her master's in counseling. And she started to research psychopharmacology. She started to study the mind in all these different aspects and she just became this this go-to person and all of a sudden you know people could probably say oh you know she was you know never going to get better all these different things or they saw her at her worst but then all of a sudden she was this go-to person for all these people who had children that were struggling from uh, whether it was substance abuse or um, other hallmarks of mental illness and stuff, it was like, well, you need to call Sister Jensen. You know, she can she can help. And and that's that's who she became. And 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 I'm sure that you know maybe even if there's people that that listen to this and they're like, oh yeah, that's that's yeah, that's John's mom. That's Sister Jensen. That's so you know they know because she became assertive she put in the effort she was seeking the lord just as much she was doing those things to to help what the lord's efforts were become like those active ingredients to to help her get better 
and there was, you know, still ups and downs, but she understood who she was. And I think that also came from the example of, of her parents, um, which my grandparents were really good people. Isn't that amazing <clears throat> that the Lord gives us all custom leaven? And I mean the good biblical leaven, not the bad leaven, but gives us all something and we can decide if we are going to be passengers in the in the boat or if we can take control of it with the Lord's help. I love at the beginning you said that your father partnered with God on this. So certainly, yeah. certainly all of us need to part. I mean, none of us are in control, but I think you know what I mean. Like right. saying, okay, this is the hand that I've been dealt. And to the best of my faculty, I'm going to make the best out of this. And I'm not just going to make the best out of it. Your mom grew it. I mean, she she thrived. She became a resource for others. Said, okay, if if this is where I'm at, then doggone it, I'm going to make the very best of it, and I'm going to help other people do it. I'm going to build the kingdom, however I can build it. Right, and 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 the the, the contributions that she's had, um, you know, even from the smallest, um, you you could even talk to Kemp about this, you know. Um, and he even, you know, could tell stories and stories, um, about the kind of person that she is. Um, there, when I was in junior high, I was at one junior high and then I had my mom teaching at the rival junior high, um, <laughs> with kids from the same age group that I went to high school with. And they're like, Oh yeah, I had your mom for English, <laughs> you know, and, and they loved her though, because, you know, she just, she was just really amazing. Um, you know, and, and she was doing that while she was working on her master's. And, and, uh, but I think that there's just this, um, way of recognizing the hand of the Lord. Um, and typically we, we see that in our own experiences. And I say that because, um, it, well, how do I, so my my experience as I grew up um, and as I went on my mission, um, I started to develop the hallmarks of bipolar disorder. Okay. And it was something that I never, ever expected. It wasn't something I was looking for as reasons of why... Um, I was starting to struggle in, in certain aspects. Um, I, I had started to interpret it as that I wasn't doing enough um, or that I wasn't a, a good enough missionary or that that the level of discomfort that started to become a part of my, my days as um, towards the close of my mission um, became so difficult and in, in, in a way, I improperly associated that somehow that had to do with some sort of disappointment that God had in me or something. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I say that out loud, right, because that's, that's something that I have heard from other people who have served missions, that there's that association. And I'm here to say that that is satanic. It's a very demonic twist on something that the Lord would never, ever 
say to his missionaries. Never ever say to his children, I'm so disappointed in you and that's why you're feeling this discomfort. It's, just, it's not. Yeah. yeah and I yeah. think that that is important um, given how important the work of missionary work is for missionaries um, or people even preparing to go to understand God is not punishing them. God is not disappointed in them. Um, but trying to help as President Nelson has encouraged us to understand the character of God is to understand how loving and the compassionate father he is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think the Lord always invites us and lifts us, always invites us to do better, to improve, but he doesn't invite, he doesn't encourage improvement by um, shame or embarrassment or things like that. He's always lifting, always inviting and bringing closer to him, never pushing away. And so, yeah, I agree. whether we're feeling those things uh, on a mission or as a parent or as a kid in high school or junior high uh, struggling, well, we got to recognize where that motivation is coming from. And, and if right. the end root of that motivation is, I want to go and hide in a hole, okay, that's not from God. If it's, I want to be a better person and I want to, I want to be closer to God, okay, that's, that's divine lift. That's good. Right. And go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no. So, well, I was going to say, like, you know, these stories that we, that we, uh, that we need to, to take those moments to, um, I, I think of phrases like to be still or to pause and to say, okay, I know that I've read in the scriptures that the Lord loves his children. That's what Nephi said. I know the way Joseph Smith taught about the character of God. So if I'm feeling discomfort, if I'm feeling miserable, if I'm feeling those things, then I know in my mind that even though I might not feel it, that that is not connected with God. You know how you have that weather app on your phone where it says, oh, hey, you know, it's 26 degrees outside. And then there's the thing that says it actually feels like one degree. And that's that, that real feel versus actually what's going on. And I laugh sometimes at that. Um, even though I appreciate it because I think that prevents a lot of us from going swimming uh, in the wintertime. But the, uh, <laughs> that has a, a, an interesting way of looking at life sometimes when, we're, when we are struggling with what our feelings are versus what's actually going on. Yeah. Because, and I say that in the sense that we, myself, have experienced the shame from from others from people who look at me and say why aren't you better or why isn't this working or why did you forget to do this or why didn't you do this and different things and you get that that frustration that shame because you're starting to to get the world view of what your contributions are or aren't Mm -hmm. And there's a level of frustration that does come from um, people we trust um, or maybe even acquaintances or things like that, that, that look and say, 
well, I think you should be here and you're not. So without even expressing solution, it becomes an expression of frustration. And one of the things that I started to realize <clears throat> is that those people are having very real experiences themselves, things that cause them discomfort that they might associate, you know, not accurately with maybe what's going on with my actions and things, but who's really behind creating the discomfort in the whole situation because it's the adversary. And even those, those actual expressions of, of feeling shamed or feeling frustration of others or different things like this creates a very real sense of, of a trauma we still are able to seek the Lord. The Lord isn't absent in that situation. And if we can, if we can seek him, if we can look for him, um, and even though it might take us a while to find him, so to speak, he's still there. And we can say, okay, this is what actually is going on versus the real feel of what's going on. Yeah. Because... That's the adversary's job. He does not care if you fall to the right or to the left or forward or backward, just as long as you fall. And when we can recognize that, I think it allows peace and forgiveness to start to prevail in our hearts from those experiences that, yes, we wish we didn't have to go through and we would never wish upon anybody else but it starts to allow that feeling of discontent or disorganization or frustration or things like this to dissipate. I was thinking to myself last night that we have this divine identity and we talk about it a lot. And there are many within the church who probably recognize that phrase and say, Oh yes, there's a divine identity and I'm supposed to have that. Why don't I feel it? Why don't I feel connected to this divine within me? Mm -hmm. What's wrong with me? And, and it's when we start to do that and we start to take the evaluation that other people have for us and the evaluation that we have for ourselves of the things that we're not doing or the things that we're not contributing. And that's where the adversary wins. Because we've now taken that di divine identity and we've diminished it because of how we treat ourselves. Mm. We've diminished it because of how we treat other people. And if we listen to the, the, the prophets um, in general conference and the other church officers talk about how we treat ourselves and about how we should be treating others who are also children of God that we, I think for me, it's like I started to realize like, okay, I'm the one that's diminishing things here. I mean, yeah, so-and-so may have treated me like this, but what I do with that is either going to diminish that divine within me and diminish that divine within that person, or I can ask the Lord to partner and say, what, what can I do to see this differently? How do I get away from the real feel and see what's actually going on? Mm. 
and that takes time. I'm 45 years old. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it takes a little bit of work, but the Lord's hand is there. Yeah. If we are willing to see it, it's there. It's in, been there. It's been the stories from our childhood. It's been um, stories that could have been from something yesterday that maybe we didn't see. But if we take the time to ask and say, hey, you know, I, I thought you were there. And the Lord goes, oh, I was there. <laughs> see, here, here, here's where I was at. And you go, oh, okay, okay. But it's only when we're seeking. Okay, so that's what I was going to ask. John, what have you done in your life to help you see the Lord's presence, to see the Lord's hand and miracles? I honestly had, like I mentioned in the beginning, was seeing my dad catching him on his knees, um, catching him reading his scriptures has made a huge impact on me. Uh, when I was getting ready to go, um, on my mission, um, I had loved participating in seminary. I loved participating in, you know, those ironic priesthood ordinances. I really enjoyed that. And I had a, uh, a, a an institute teacher that was also a, a seminary teacher when I was in high school. And, and he had uh, gone from the seminary to being an institute teacher and, and I took an institute class for him before my mission and for the first time that I was able to recognize he taught us about that promise in in Moroni about reading the Book of Mormon seeing God's interaction with his children he really sincerely praying about it and I remember when he was going over that, um, I didn't quite have my mission call yet, but I just remember going, wait, that's in there? <laughs> almost like almost like I was like, well, where was I at in seminary? The last, you know, well, what's going on right now? And, and uh, but I remember thinking about that for weeks and weeks and weeks and really trying to understand how that was there before and it was, you know, how it wasn't there before and now it was, and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so I took that, that challenge um, and I took it very seriously. And it was funny because on the night that I was um, able to receive that witness that the Book of Mormon was the word of God, it, it changed everything about my nature. It changed my heart. And it was in a way that I didn't know could happen. And it was like, it was, it was so profound for me that it was like two o'clock in the morning. And I went and woke my parents up with this jubilation and excitement as if I was going to tell them something that maybe they didn't know. And, you know, and it was, it was a, maybe a little naive, but, but it was that same kind of like, Oh, wow. Everybody's got to know about this. Now this is, this is huge. This is so great. This is, and that was, that was my experience. And so for me, um, I look at it the way that um, we read about Joseph Smith using the Urim and um, um, using the seer stone to, to translate um, the, the plates uh, into the, the Book of Mormon. 
And I often then thought about how now I use the Book of Mormon as sort of the minimum for myself and translating what's going on. And and so that that's been a huge thing for me in my life is always having that experience. And I mean, honestly, many, 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 many other experiences, but having that singular episode of that witness that the Book of Mormon is true, that has always been that reminder that when maybe there aren't great side effects from a medication that I'm trying out or that I'm taking or that something's not working or that what what it is that I always have the Book of Mormon to be that that foundation that backbone that 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 I need yeah I I mean it sounds like to me what I hear you saying is the things that have helped you see the hand of the Lord in your life is scripture study and prayer right there's no there's no mystery and I think a lot of times as members of the church we want sometimes to do the hard thing you know we're we're like Naaman I'm pretty sure it's Naaman where we don't want to just bathe in the river you know seven times that's too easy we want to do something hard we want the Lord to tell us you got to go to the temple for eight hours a day for a month and then I'll give you a testimony no, you just just read the scriptures and prayer, and I would add, go to church. Right, right. It's it's those simple ones, those basics that um, that really are the main ingredients. It's the it's the manna yeah. that the Lord sends us. At uh, you know, sure, we want quail. I don't know. Maybe we don't want quail. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we want cow. I you know, cow tastes good. But, uh, you know, we, we, we forget sometimes of how powerful of an experience we can have just by opening the scriptures. And there were so many, I don't know if you remember, there were these old Book of Mormon seminary videos that used to have that sort of cheesy way of, of saying like, oh, there's so much power that could, you know, and, and we probably thought it was cheesy and, and bless those, you know, 90s directors and, and script writers and things like that. But, um, but I, but there is, and I, and I mean, in contrast, <clears throat> to contrast that, and I, and I, and I don't want to take away from the actual experience that I had when I was, um, when I was a, a priest, we went uh, whitewater rafting and uh and there's probably maybe um church officers that are like hey we just sent out a safety protocol thing for everybody to know but uh, this, this was in the 90s um <laughs> so uh, we we went whitewater rafting and uh it was it was down the salt river in in, in down in the valley of arizona and um you know, we had a, a a break for lunch just before we got to this, this huge drop waterfall. Um, that we we're going to take these boats and I took off my life vest and we were breaking for lunch, things like this. And then I, uh, I thought that we were done, um, after about a half an hour. And, and so I went to put my life vest on and my priesthood leaders like me, like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I thought we were getting in. Like, no, we're not going yet. And I'm like, okay. So I unbuckled my life vest, but I left it on, but I unbuckled. And then after about another 20 minutes, we all got back in the boats. And then 
through this experience, I was uh, in this uh, boat that when we went over this fall, that was about a, a you know twelve foot drop. Um, we got turned, so we went sideways, and the boat flipped over in towards the waterfall, and we all went down. And then there's me going, wait, why am I holding my life as what's going on? And as I'm being dragged under this water of an experience that I'd never had in my life of being dragged under the water and very nearly drowning. And I panicked. So I kind of let all that air out and and I literally saw this blackness and I just thought, well, I didn't think this was when I was going to die. And so I started to pray, prayed like I'd never prayed before. And I was literally being bounced along these rocks and sort of mild boulders along the bottom of this riverbed without feeling like I had any leverage or anything to just do anything. It was very scary. And, and I just felt this uh, voice say push. And so I got this visual that I can kick with my legs and push off the bottom. And just when I had done that, I'd hit this stable kind of boulder and it pushed and it started to kind of propel me up the surface. And, and I literally saw the break where there was the water that was dark and then the water that was like white, I guess. I don't know. And I started, I broke the surface and I went like this. And then one of my best friends rolled over the top of me and I was like, really? But, and then, so I kind of had that, that similar experience again. And, but only this time I knew that I was going to answer my prayer because he'd just done it. And so I, and so I, I, I prayed again and I waited and I heard that or felt that voice push boom. And then, and then I propelled up to the surface and, and then I look off in the distance and there's these other boats that were waiting, you know, my priesthood leaders and stuff. And they're like, what are you doing? Why aren't you, why isn't your vest on? I'm like, Oh, thanks. (laughs) Okay. You know, that's great. Um, So I, uh, they, they were very supportive. So they were reminding me that my vest was not on. So that was important for me to know. But I, uh, so it was, a, it was, a, it was a very scary experience, very, very real ordeal. And I, and I, I bring the levity to it now. But when I got home, I, you know, we didn't have cell phones and all that different stuff. And or maybe some people did, but you know. Elon Musk and, you know, billionaires, but, um, I called my dad at his office and I said, dad, you're never going to believe what just happened. And he goes, I know. And I said, what? He said, I know. He said, I saw you under the river. He says, I stopped what I was doing and I knelt down in my office and I began to pray for you. 
that the Lord would preserve your life. And for me, I, I was just, I was just blown away because the gospel had had a reality to it, even though I was a teenager. But there was something about that exchange with my dad that there was a very tangible, real recognition that the Lord was very aware of not only who I was, but of answering the prayers of my dad. And it's often that I've gone back to that experience where I realized that sometimes the kicking and the flailing and the things that we're, we're doing when we feel that discomfort, when we feel that oppressive darkness, when we feel that we're not in control, which is exactly what the adversary wants us to feel like, is that the Savior is trying to tell us that he is there, that, that if we will pray like we'd never prayed before and use that as the method, as the measuring of how to get out of that kind of jam, whether it's mental, physical, emotional, whatever it is, instead of turning to those easily coping physical sensations of, of, of unenduring joy, you know, those, those temporary things. If we, if we will turn to him and pray like Peter prayed saying, Lord, save me. He will be there. And it's, Honestly, those experiences, which are unique for each of us, if we really think and try and seek, we'll find them and we'll realize, oh, the Lord is aware for me. He's not going to just save me right here just so that I can perish over here, that he's got a plan. I tell you, this has been fantastic. Um, thank you so much for being willing to share these stories about you and your mom and your dad. I mean, three giants, three giants that walk among us. So thank you. For <laughs> well, thank you. I I will I will try to keep uh, as giant as I can. But but yeah, I've I've been very blessed with very rich experiences that I think the last thing if, if, if I could end with sort of this thought is what has helped in addition to the prayer and the scripture study is the realization that when I need healing, when I need those important um, connected experiences sometimes do have those gaps because of mental illness and such 
is one of the greatest things that I have learned is that by serving somebody else, by trying to answer the prayers of somebody else, by trying to bring them comfort or understanding, or even just to say, hey, the Lord loves you. And I can see it, even though you might not be able to. So just hang on. Those are the reasons that we're here. That yes, in a way, salvation is individual, but we get so much farther with so much more strength and foundation by reaching out, by helping, by serving, by ministering, by doing those things that take us outside of ourselves and that myopic kind of view in helping somebody else. I love it. Um, yeah, that, that's a fantastic thought to end on, serving others through everything. Thanks again for being here and, and letting us get to know you a little bit better. Thank you for inviting me. This is, this is great. I love what you're doing. And I, I hope and I have hundreds of videos for people to peruse through soon. So. That's the goal for sure.